The following is a sermon that was preached at Faith Lutheran Church in Sharpsburg, Georgia. For more information about our church or to hear past sermons from Faith Lutheran, visit georgiafaith.com. Thank you for listening. So last week I was traveling across Europe doing work for our board for world missions. And I was on a train going from Frankfurt to Leipzig. And when we got near Eisenach, I looked out the train window, and here was this mountain that rose 1,300 feet above the plains around it. And on top of it, this magnificent castle, Wartburg Castle. It was uh, built about 1,000 AD, and it was a castle that was never conquered in 1,000 years. No doubt, this was a castle on Martin Luther's mind when he wrote that famous hymn, a mighty fortress is our God. Because it was in Wartburg Castle that Luther went to hide for his life. The Reformation started in a little university town in Germany in the 1500s because there was a professor who saw abuses that were happening in the church. Most specifically, abuses about how can someone be right with God. The church was telling people it was about who you are or what you did, what you gave. But that wasn't what the scriptures said. And so this professor, Martin Luther, wanted to debate how one gets right with God. And so he wrote up 95 sentences or theses to debate at in the university and did the normal thing, published it on the community billboard, which was the front door of the castle church. But a few years before this, that other great invention of the 1500s happened, which was the Gutenberg's movable type printing press. And so Luther's 95 theses, they didn't stay on the church door. I mean, they went across Europe like a wildfire. They shook the church and the empire to its foundations. And it provoked a very severe response. The church wanted this movement crushed out. And the emperor of Europe, Well, he wanted his lands to be united because there was a growing threat in the east. The Islamic armies were gathering around Vienna. So the Holy Roman Emperor, he wanted his lands united against a common enemy, didn't want religious squabbles happening. And so in 1521, Martin Luther received a summons to show up to a government gathering in a city called Worms. And he had a binary choice to make. Will you recant what you've preached and the books you've taught or not? If he refused to recant, the church would condemn him as a heretic. The empire would declare him an outlaw, both of which resulted in capital punishment. The people that Luther stood in front of in Worms had a dizzying amount of power. I mean, he stood before a church that claimed absolute spiritual authority over every Christian living in the West. And he stood before an emperor who had possibly the greatest land holdings in history. Charles V, his personal land holdings stretched from easternmost part of Europe, across the continent, across the Atlantic, to include the Spanish New World. He was perhaps the most powerful man in history. But faced with that ecclesiastical and imperial authority, Luther stood on the simple truths of the Bible. So 
He did not. He would not recant. When I was going through Europe or Germany this past week, I saw his famous words on lots of statues. It's, here I stand. I can do, I can do no other. God help me. Amen. His words are rightly remembered. But the words that I think we often forget are the words that Charles V, the most powerful man in the world, said at the end of that day. Words that remind us what was at stake. The most powerful man in the world said this, I've decided to mobilize everything against Luther. My kingdoms and dominions, my friends, my body, my blood, and my soul. The Church of the Reformation would live another day, but it was going to have to fight for it. And that was why allies of Martin Luther snatched him up on the way back from Worms, which he had safe passage guaranteed, and hid him away in that magnificent fortress that I saw from the train from Frankfurt in the Wartburg. He hid for his life. 500 years from that point, maybe we could be tempted to look and say, what, what was so important about this that people were literally willing to risk their lives for it? It's an important thing to do on the Festival of the Reformation is to see where the church has stood for 500 years and why they said this was worth dying for. Our reading today comes from Romans chapter 3, and this is the part of Scripture, kind of the heart of Scripture, that the Reformers would say the first and chief article of the faith, and it all comes down to a very important question. How can I be right with God? How can I be right with God? For young Luther, that question drove him into the monastery on a fruitless search to try to see if he could work his way into a right relationship with God. But that same question led him later into scriptures where he should have started, where he came across and came to the breathtaking realization that a person is justified, that means to be declared righteous, by faith apart from observing the law. Okay, this is the radical claim of the gospel right here that says our status before God has nothing to do with how we live or what kind of people we are. It's a radical claim. And you know what it does? It rejects the world's biggest assumption about God. The world's biggest assumption about God is this, that God loves good people. It says no. Our status before God has nothing to do with who we are, how we live, what we've done. But you know, that radical claim also rejects a big assumption that maybe Christians sometimes make. I mean, we know the world is wrong. We know that God doesn't love good people. We know that God loves all people. But maybe deep down you and I face a, a different temptation, a little more subtle temptation, Sometimes don't we think that God tends to at least favor those people who can kind of get their lives together? So people whose lives don't look like everybody else's where their brokenness is just on full display for everybody to see? I mean, we hear what God says, that there's no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we think to ourselves, well, some people have fallen a bit, faller, a bit further short than others, right? And there might be no difference, really no difference, God? Some people have sinned a whole lot more. Is there really no difference whatsoever? You know, that's the, uh, 
the temptation we have there is to reject the word that God uses to describe your justification in our reading this morning. The word is freely, right? God uses it to describe how he declares us to be righteous. And freely, undeservedly, maybe that's, that's hard for pious churchly folks. Because, you know what, you're here this morning and God love you, you look like your lives are pretty much pulled together. You don't have brokenness on full display all around you. Surely God tends to favor people like you. Except, uh, except nobody knows the brokenness that you're hiding inside, right? We just maybe do a better job of keeping our brokenness quiet. But you know the jagged edges of your inner life. You know the dark and shattered pieces of the brokenness that's below the surface. You might not let others see it, but you see it. So does God. Every bit of it. Those sins that make you hang your head in shame, the sins that make you burn with embarrassment, God knows them. And what can we say? What excuse can broken people like us offer? Paul says this is that every mouth might be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Paul's bringing us to the unavoidable conclusion that when it comes to the righteousness of my life, there's no difference between the sins in my life and the wickedness of this world. How can I be right with God? Me? I can't. I just can't. And no amount of promises or commitments or life coaching can fix the brokenness that's inside of me. But, Paul wrote, but. But now, he says, in this glorious pivot from despair to hope, he says, but now a new age has dawned. There's a righteousness from God that has nothing to do with me and my brokenness. There's a righteousness from God that has been made known. The beating heart of Scripture is this, that God declares the sinner to be righteous undeservedly, freely, only by his grace. See, God's brilliant gospel promises reach down, find us in our brokenness, and pull us out of it. Because he says to you, you don't deserve it, but I declare you righteous. I declare it. So put your guilt away. Put your doubt away. Stop hanging your head in shame or burning with embarrassment. You can stand before me. You can be right with me because I declare it in the face of any and all unworthiness. Listen to what Paul says. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is a radical claim that the gospel makes. 
that you being right with God has nothing to do with your actions, your attitudes, your behavior, and has everything to do with God's mercy. To Paul, for Paul to try to explain this to us, he, he uses three really important words that show how this can be. He says, you are justified, you are redeemed, and you are atoned. Those three words each have pictures behind them. One's from a court of law, one's from the slave market, and one's from the temple. Justified, redeemed, atoned. First, he says you're justified. That means in the divine court of heaven, you've been acquitted. That means you are not liable to be punished for the things that you've done wrong. Now, on its surface, that makes absolutely no sense, right? God said, don't do this, and the soul that sins, it shall die. How does this work? How can you and I be acquitted when it's so obvious our sin? Did God, like, change his mind on sin? Did he, like, go soft? Is he like one of those fathers who has lots of rules for his kids, and then he turns into a grandfather, and all the rules go out the window, right? You can suddenly take juice in the living room, climb on the table. Is that what God's like? No. No, that wouldn't be just. God's justice says sin has to be punished. And God did punish it. He just didn't punish you. See, you can be justified because you were redeemed. That word redemption, Paul's audience would have thought immediately of the slave markets. Because you see, a slave, your freedom could be purchased. It was called being redeemed. If someone paid the price to set you free. And there were plenty of redemptions that happened around the Roman world, but Paul here is talking about the one great act of redemption, the Jesus Christ redemption. An act of redemption where the price was so high, it demanded God's blood and divine death. You are justified because he purchased me, not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood, with his innocent suffering and death. You're justified because you're redeemed. And that redemption could happen because someone made atonement for you. The word atonement takes us into the temple, into the very innermost part of the temple, behind the curtain, into the Holy of Holies, a place where only one man could go, only once per year, and only with blood. It was there in the Holy of Holies on the great day of atonement when the high priest would make the sacrifice for God's people to make them at one atonement, at one again with God. Paul here points to Jesus and said, he is the place where God made atonement. In the temple, it was the mercy seat, the atonement cover. But Paul's saying, this is Jesus. He is the once-for-all sacrifice that finally restored what had been broken since Eden. He made God and man at one again in communion with each other. And so God presents Jesus to the world as proof of his justice by punishing sin and proof of his love by justifying sinners. See, atonement means God's law and God's gospel are both true because God's justice and God's love meet in the person of Jesus Christ. The result, Paul says, and so... And so we maintain that a person is justified by faith, apart from observing the law. 
That is the first, that is the chief article of the Christian faith, and that is a truth worth dying for. For 500 years, the Church of the Reformation has stood on that fact and the radical claim of God's grace. But you know, Reformation festivals are not just about remembering where the church has stood. It also asks you and me about where the church will stand. Will we hold this truth to be as important as the reformers who are willing to risk life and limb? Because our battle today isn't against imperial armies, but it is against everything that attempts to sideline this message of God's radical grace in offering forgiveness to sinners like you and me. Battle today is for the church's future. Will we still stand where those reformers stood? Will we proclaim an unchanging truth to a people adrift on a sea of relativity? Will we reach out and engage a culture that trumpets inclusivity with the exclusive message of salvation in Christ alone? Will we have the audacity to storm the gates of hell with the message that God saves sinners by faith through grace alone? Where will we be? Where will we stand? Let's us, let's us be a church here that leans into its core mission. Let's be the church that everyone in this community says, you know what, that's the place where they preach radical grace. That's the place where they serve grace neat. Let's be that kind of church. Because there's lots of churches out there that preach God's grace, uh, but it isn't alone. Lots of churches that might preach faith, but it requires a decision. Preach scripture, but thinks it says too little about modern times or far too much. That preach Christ as a way but not as the one and only. Us? Let's be the church of God's great alones. God grant it. Amen. Amen.